Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 41. Why is there suffering? After Hours with Dr. Bethany N. Soloretta. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've been talking about love. We worked our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And we then had Ecumenism Month. And we are now in the middle of Apologetics Month, where we're examining some of Lewis's favorite arguments for reality, God, and Christianity. The quotation at the start of this episode is from The Problem of Pain. And from that, you might be able to guess what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about what I think is the best argument for atheism, which Lewis called the problem of pain. And to guide us through this topic, I'm joined by Bethany N. Soloretta. Dr. Soloretta received her PhD in theology from the University of Exeter and an MCS in interdisciplinary studies from Regent College, Vancouver. She is a research fellow at the Laudato Sea Research Institute at Campion Hall at the University of Oxford. She specializes in theology concerning evolution and the problem of suffering, and is currently working on the theological aspects of our changing climate. Bethany also lived at the Kilns for several years as a scholar in residence. She is the author of God, Evolution, and Animal Suffering, Theodicy Without a Fall, and last year she published her book, Why Is There Suffering? Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. Dr. Bethany Soloretta, welcome to Pints of Jack. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I first heard about you through the C.S. Lewis Foundation. I remember I had received uh, an email about a talk that you were going to be giving on suffering. And I got excited because at that point I started planning this apologetics month. I thought, perfect, this is the ideal person. And I really did intend to watch it live. But then rather ironically, I ended up being unable to watch it because I was vomiting as a result of a stomach bug. So I was suffering rather than learning about suffering academically. I'm so sorry. But you can always be comforted that those stomach bugs were having literally the time of their life. <laughs> you know, I mean, you were sick because they were flourishing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very Eucharistic. <laughs> like, this is my body given for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, we're getting into the deep news already. <laughs> That's exactly right. It is Eucharistic. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that you chatted about in that talk, and it is available online. You can actually now watch it on YouTube, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But scripture says, give drink to the man who is failing. And so today I'm drinking a peanut butter stout. Uh, so what are you having? I have here what I have uh, come to call solar ale. So this is my home brew, which I actually learned to make while I was living in C.S. Lewis's house at the Kilns. So my very first formulations of this were fermented in his sort of attic space, just off the children's room for those who, who know the kilns. That is so amazing. Actually, the C.S. Lewis Foundation should, they should do something with that. I would absolutely buy beer that was made at the kilns. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to get in touch with them and offer them that to become a master brewer. <laughs> I love that idea. Well, I would like to toast our Patreon supporter, Amanda Saltz. Amanda, when St. Paul prayed that his thorn in the flesh be removed, Jesus replied that his grace would be sufficient. So we pray that Christ's abundant grace would be with you throughout all your joys and trials. Cheers. Cheers. Is, is the peanut butter stout good? Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> That's good. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's, it's not as good as the stuff that I used to have back in San Diego, but uh, here in Wisconsin... Mm -hmm. They know how to do beer. Whenever you live in a place where the weather isn't great all year, the beer tends to be much better because people need to survive. <laughs> I think you're right. There's a causal link there. Absolutely. Well, can you please tell us a little bit about your background and your spiritual journey and the role that Lewis has played along the way? Yeah. Um, so I didn't grow up in a family that went to church. I occasionally went with uh, my grandmother when I visited but I did go to a Catholic school and was taught some of the basics of Christianity there uh, and always had a, had a sense of God, but didn't, didn't live a, you know, a Christian life in any particular way. Uh, but I loved horses. 
And so I kept going out to Christian riding camps and sort of heard the gospel every year. And finally, when I was 15, I became staff at one of them. And that's really the point at which I sort of think of my conversion. So started going to church on my own after that summer. And one of the first authors that I really came across was C.S. Lewis. I'd, of course, read the Narnia Chronicles and I don't know if I'd read Out of the Silent Planet, etc. yet. I don't think so. But uh, came across Mere Christianity, uh, Problem of Pain, Grief Observed, and started started reading those then and haven't really stopped reading them until today. So, you know, I think they continue to be to be rich. Of course, my, my critiques of them have grown uh, over the years, but I still deeply appreciate the way that Lewis can articulate complex theological thoughts very simply, often with a, a vivid illustration, some sort of piece of imagination that just sort of puts all the pieces in place. I had never heard of a Christian riding camp before, but that's wonderful. I just imagine that after conversions, people are, are sticking stickers on the, the backs of their horses saying, Jesus, take the reins. <laughs> that, that's pretty good. Yeah, I like it. I think there's a market there, too. So we've come up with two new things, uh, <laughs> the Kilns Brewery. And uh, 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 yes, evangelistic uh, equarianism. Equestrianism. Oh, sorry, yes, you're quite right. Evangelistic <laughs> equestrianism. Well, I think those terrible jokes are actually a very good transition to talk about suffering. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so you've written a lot about this. So let's let's just talk broadly about it. What is it about suffering which causes difficulties when we're talking about God? I think one of the problems with suffering is that it it hurts when it comes down to it. It hurts, and it can make us question what we believe about God, whether we think God is good whether we think God exists. And I think actually the question, does God exist, is, is a more modern one than the question of, is God good? Hmm. Uh, but I think that, that that is often, in our minds, what, what comes into the conversation when we encounter suffering. And I think you can see this in, in C.S. Lewis's work. So, you know, he has a whole nice little book on the problem of pain, which he writes in 1940, uh, in the outbreak of World War II. And he has just lots of answers about how as the, the quote you read at the beginning is from that book. But in Grief Observed, he suddenly has lost his beloved wife. And his question is not, does God exist? But is God really good? Or is God some sort of cosmic sadist? And I think, I think that that when we think about what a loving God would provide in the world, we don't think of the sorts of suffering we actually encounter. And so it's that disparity that causes so much trouble. Hmm. So you've mentioned Lewis's two main books on the question of suffering, and they are a very different character. Sometimes I hear it presented as though he was writing a book all about theory because he had been living a charmed life. And that's when he wrote The Problem of Pain and just gave us a, theolo a theological or philosophical answer. And then he, when he actually encountered some real tragedy, that was when things got serious and he discarded all of those rational beliefs and just cried out. But when you look at Lewis's biography, he had experienced a lot of suffering prior to The Problem of Pain. His mother had died when he was still a very young child. He had suffered at school. He had gone through the trenches of World War I. So it's mm -hmm. not like he was unfamiliar with suffering. But there is definitely a difference between the problem of pain and a grief observed. What do you think is, is the differentiating factor? Why are those two books so different? Yeah, I think precisely in light of what you said, I think it is very hard. He'd lost his best friend. The World War I trenches where he had nightmares for the rest of his life about the horrors that he saw there. So you could say, ah, he's a young man with full of answers. Um, but it's interesting because actually in A Grief Observed, he says something along those same lines of I didn't know what I was talking about. And so he he sort of says, I'm just looking at sort of pages 42 and 43 for those who are who are interested, he, he really does sort of say, 
you know, I, I knew already that these things and worse happened daily. And I would have said that I had taken them into account. I had been warned. I had warned myself not to reckon on worldly happiness. And then he, he goes on and talks about this, his own collapse of, of faith. And he said, if I had really cared, as I thought I did about the sorrows of the world, I should not have been so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. And he continues on. So it's quite interesting that that argument that we find so unconvincing, oh, it had never really hit him in a real way, seems to be his own understanding of it. And it maybe that's a psychological trick, that the, the trauma of what he's going through mm -hmm. now has, has meant that the past traumas seem milder in comparison, you know, wh whatever is present is the most urgent in our mind. Or it's simply that he's not writing for a public audience in the same way. So these are not, these are, are notebooks of grief that he is just working out because he's a writer. Whereas the problem of pain, he's writing as, as a, you know, public Christian trying to give answers to the wider world. Uh, but I, I think that that's a great answer that maybe someday we can ask him. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the book's title also speaks very powerfully to me because it says it's a grief observed. He is he is just observing what is going on inside of him, and because I, I would say that I I would use the very very similar kinds of arguments of Lewis from the problem of pain when I'm speaking about pain in general, but at some of the the major events of my life where I have experienced loss, I can intellectually know those things, but they just seem to go out of focus just because pain causes us to focus on it, to, to pay attention to it. Even if it's something as simple as stubbing your toe, you can be having a great day and you stub your toe and then suddenly the world falls away and all you can experience is, is that pain that you're going through. It just demands to be attended to. And so it changes our vision of the world, but it doesn't always last. Hopefully it doesn't no. last. I actually yeah. read A Grief Observed shortly after getting married. <laughs> uh, I was uh -huh. having, I had a wonderful marriage, still do. Uh, I, but I don't know. I, I think that, because I knew the story of A Grief Observed. I knew it was when he, he had lost his wife. And here I am, a newlywed. And I love my wife deeply. And I, I kind of wanted to peer into what that world would be like. And Lewis does describe it vividly. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's, let's backtrack a little bit and let's talk about the arguments that Lewis uses when he's talking about why there is pain, why is there suffering? What does he champion? Because Christians have responded to the question of suffering with theodicies, with explanations as to how there can be suffering and God can be good. What does Lewis in particular focus upon? Well, he gives, he gives more than one answer which I think is interesting. And so, but I think that they usually follow sort of two, two large lines. One is that uh, there was no other way that God could make the world um, with the goods God wanted without the, the, the bads. So if God wants a world where creatures can communicate with each other, then there has to be the possibility that they can harm one another. And so, you know, he kind of says, you, you know, you think in your mind, oh, I could create a world that had all the goods without the bads. Um, but he sort of says that might be like saying that you can be a married bachelor, you know, mm -hmm. and, and nonsense about God is, is nonsense all the same. We simply can't do that. So, so what we'd call the package deal or the only way argument that there's, there's simply no way to have the goods uh, that God wants to have in terms of allowing creatures to develop will, will work. And then the second sort of approach that he uses is this one that's captured really well by your quotation, that, that God wants to discipline us in, in our pain, that this is God's major tool of of shaping and that and that becomes uh, a major theme in the four loves as well, and uh, I actually think that that's rather a disturbing argument. I think that you know if we if we have a, a parent who who disciplines a child mildly, we we think that's appropriate, but if we had a parent who who 
you know, broke their child's arm or, or hurt them in what would be even mild ways compared to what happens to people every day in this world, we would say that's simply abusive. And so I think, I think this argument that God not only allows suffering to happen in order to, to create a matrix of uh, where, where goods can happen as well, but actually causes them is quite troubling to me. And now, now he tries to save himself by saying, well, of course, the parent's wisdom is not perfect, but God's is, and God would never give us more than we can handle that, you know, that sort of argument. Hmm. Uh, when he gets to a grief observed, you don't find that argument anymore. <laughs> he sort of, he begins to set it up and then he says, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm setting up the same house of cards that has just been torn down again. So I think, I think that um, he himself didn't find that wholly satisfactory. Mm. And I would agree with that, at least from an experiential point of view. You know, when mm -hmm. we lost a child, part of me wanted to say, well, what am I meant to learn from this? And mm -hmm. the answer is, I have no idea what this could possibly teach me. I mean, I can draw some ideas out of it, but... Honestly, you, you, it's not particularly instructive other than just to get your attention. And I'm sure we'll talk about the, the book of Job at some point, but that is the one thing that you see in Job's life when his life falls apart. The one thing that he does is he cries out to God. And mm -hmm. I suppose you could argue that that is the best good in itself, that, that for the human to reach out to his or her creator. When you were describing... The, this theodicy, this this way of trying to reconcile God's goodness by describing Him as this parent who is who is wanting us to 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 develop, to grow, so that we might learn something. It, it struck me that it it's sort of a negative version of the argument from desire. The argument from desire means that we have something within us that yearns for more, that makes us look beyond this world. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, experiencing pain does the same thing. It it raises our eyes sometimes to ask those bigger questions. It points us beyond this world because that's that's what the human soul seems to naturally do when it's encountering this, to, to look beyond this and try and find reason and comfort and everything else. What do you make of that? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of spinning off the cuff here a little bit because I've never sort of uh, talked about <laughs> that argument from, from desire in quite that way. Uh, I, I, it just occurred to me now. <laughs> What I, what I find difficult is that while we might rebel against pain and suffering, I think what you said earlier, that pain actually grounds us in the immediate now in a way that almost nothing else does, mm. makes that kind of argument very bad. Because we, we might want to say, I just don't want to be here anymore. But that's hardly a sort of calling towards the joy of heavens. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, I've had a, a few older friends and, and mentors who uh, one has has already died, the other one is right now slowly dying of very painful cancer, and they have died very well. And they have said, you know, um, you know, uh, talking to my mentor last week, he he sort of said, you know, as I as I can do less, the inner life grows sweeter and sweeter. You know, and 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 so I think I think that there, I think that there is a human capacity to be able to look beyond pain and beyond the sort of uh, finiteness of this life in into into God's provision. Um, but I wouldn't want to move too quickly from the fact that the very ability to feel pain, I think, is a gift in itself. Um, so when we when we feel pain, it protects us, right? It tells us to pull our hand from the from the stove. It tells us which people to avoid. You know, it 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 it's a protective feature that helps us learn how to navigate this world in in bodies that aren't able to to sustain unlimited amounts of of damage and conflict. Um, and so there are people who don't feel pain. So Hansen's disease is a great example. And that used to be called leprosy. And all it does is it kills the pain nerves. And all the subsequent damage comes from people burning themselves or breaking their fingers and not noticing. In one African clinic, the problem was rats were coming in the night and chewing off people's fingers. And because they felt no pain, they didn't, they didn't wake up. And and so and and couldn't protect themselves against against this kind of attack. And so we actually need pain. And if you think about it, if any of the people Jesus healed had 
Hansen's disease and not some other skin disease. They, the Greeks, not very specific. What Jesus was doing was giving back their ability to feel pain, not taking it away. So I think, I think that, I think that we can actually say, you know, pain is a gift in, in many ways, but it does happen for many of the wrong reasons because of sin. It is disproportionate sometimes because our bodies aren't perfect, et cetera, et cetera. That was a really long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I, I loved it. I, I, I realized where you were going when you were talking about Jesus' healing. I was like, wow, that is a thought that he was giving them back something that is going to cause them pain. Uh, huh. you, I mean, you feel that way about Lazarus as well. I mean, somebody who's already died once. Being brought back mm. to life may not. <laughs> well, I remember when I, f- I first read Lewis's description of Lazarus as that when he himself had been in a coma and he says, oh my goodness, I've got to walk this journey again. Mm-hmm. And he says, I now understand how Lazarus must have felt. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Actually, at high school, my mathematics teacher, he had uh, at least a variant of that so that he couldn't feel pain. So he had to be really careful when he was around stoves and anything mm-hmm. hot or extremely cold or sharp. Um one other thing I was going to mention when you were when you were talking about this idea that it about God causing pain to teach us a lesson, I think the other thing that we could drill down on there is what we mean by causing pain, and that really depends mm-hmm. upon your theological worldview. Whether you are sort of an exhaustive divine determinist, is is God actively causing this? Is He actually desiring this, or is this a consequence of our free will choices and God just using them? And we then have to naturally then transition and talk about the cross, that the cross happens. But through that suffering, God brings about something far better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and this is one of the big questions and one of the the big, I think, crossroads in, in Christian theology. So because I've been deeply influenced by the sciences and by sort of biological sciences, I'm going to say, you know, suffering developed in order to protect us in the ways I've just been talking about. Um, Mm. So, you know, as far as we are aware, trees don't suffer, bacteria don't suffer, viruses, archaea, you know, none the vast majority of life doesn't have the capacity to suffer. It's only these, you know, particular subset of animals that have these complex nervous systems that have either the capacity to feel pain and then later on the capacity to suffer. And these, these have developed because there's such an aid to survival and cooperation and group life in, in ways that are unimaginable to, to, to others. I mean, that's one way to say, well, well, the cause of our suffering is actually this, this evolutionary process that, that has helped bring us about. And God has obviously created a world in which that's a possibility. What I'm then going to say is that given suffering happens, I don't think God will let it go unredeemed. And so I don't think that God ever causes suffering, but I do think that God will make sure that every instance of suffering is redeemed. And we may see that, you know, so you have the people who say, you know, the worst thing happened to me, but years later, I would say, I'm so glad that defined me in all these ways. And I think that's a way of saying God has now redeemed that suffering in their in their lives. And I think all of us would have some some places where we could point to that and say, I really didn't like this at the time, but I'm glad it happened. I think we would all, if we're honest, say there's a few things that happened or many things that happened, and I can't see any sense in it. And I still wish that had never happened. And I think that that just points to the fact that God's work is not done yet. And also that our own point of view is limited. Yeah. Uh, you're describing what is for me the primary theology I go to with suffering. Because I very often, as you say, I look back on my life and I see some things that were horrible that were really defining and important. And I'm actually now even glad that they happened. Mm-hmm. And so just when there are other things that I can't really explain, it just reminds me that my point of view as a finite creature in time, I'm not going to be able to see it. Yeah. And it may not it may not even have a meaning in this frame of reality yet. It may mm-hmm. wait till the eschaton before God even creates meaning around that event. Hmm. I remember reading St. Augustine where he speaks about the wounds of the martyrs in heaven being glorified. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those they they reach they reach their apex, they reach their pinnacle, they reach their fruition, not here but in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your book fairly shortly, but 
Uh, there's another topic I want to address first, because Lewis was always particularly sensitive to the subject of animal suffering. You mm-hmm. see it throughout his books, definitely throughout his letters. And you've done some work on that as well. So could you speak to that for a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I mean, I think part of the reason Lewis was very uh, sensitive to that was that he had spent time in the World War One trenches. And I think nearly half a million sort of horses, donkeys and mules died in the war effort as well, dragging cannons and other, you know, bring people around. They still had cavalry in that time. Uh, and so he would have really had uh, a front row seat to, to the worst of human and animal suffering in those circumstances. My own work has really been to try and answer the question, not of animal suffering as humans commit atrocities to them, whether that's in war situations or in in sort of factory farming or that sort of thing, but rather how can God be good given an evolutionary process that happened long before humans were around to mess it up? <laughs> and so, you know, with that, you sort of think, well, okay, what what are the options? So if the chronology is wrong for humans to have caused it, should we look to non-human agents, uh, which is largely what Lewis does in his um, problem of animal pain? He says, well, humans weren't around to screw it up, but Satan was around. And so maybe we can look to the fall of the angels. And he'd be followed in that by people like Michael Lloyd, Gregory Boyd, uh, Paul Griffiths, and others. I'm not particular uh, particularly fond of that because I think it hands too much of, of creation to Satan. Uh, sort of the, the whole thing from the beginning has been corrupted, whereas what I find in Genesis is that the created world, even up to the point of humans, is is very good. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Psalms are constantly talking about how how God is, uh, you know, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 104 is pointing out how the lions are looking for their prey from God, and, and God's the one <laughs> providing it. Uh, Job, you know, the divine dialogues in Job, and we'll probably get back to Job. But God's pointing out the most problematic bits of creation as points of special pride. Like, hey, have you seen what I've done here with the hurricanes and the snowstorms and the hail and the, the Leviathan? And, you know, so, I, you know, so I just kind of think, well, I, I'm just not sure that there's that much biblical evidence for a sort of satanic fall. So I, I take the world as um, the 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 proper sort of world to create to create creatures to create creatures that will populate heaven and so i sort of think that well there's there's suffering here there's death here and those things are extremely painful but there's also reproduction there's also this chance for developing wild new possibilities um when we think of heaven I don't know of any Christian vision of heaven that includes reproduction, for example. Hmm. So we have sort of goods and values that are on this realm of existence that come with these trade-offs of death and suffering and finiteness. In the new creation, it seems that we lose those those uh, you know harms, um, but we we miss out on some of the goods that we have here as well. Wonderful. Well. With that as our background, let's talk about your book. You have kind of a unique approach to the material. I, I don't think I've ever come across a book of suffering quite like this. Apart from anything <laughs> else, it has a flowchart and a map. So would you mind explaining what that was all about? <laughs> when when I was a kid, I loved reading choose-your-own-adventure novels. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd spend hours with fingers stuck in different places, plus a few more bookmarks <laughs> moving forward and backwards through them, flipping, you know. And Because you had to check, was your choice a good one? Otherwise, yeah. no, 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 I didn't choose that. You were totally yeah, taken in because you, you'd flip forward and then you'd find out you'd die and then you didn't know how to flip <laughs> back, you know, so you could never trust a choice you made in that book. There was a ninja series that I, that I followed uh, that I absolutely loved. But yes, I died a lot. Yeah, yeah. You don't die in mine. Well, except for once, okay. and it's okay. But you, know, <laughs> you, you, you cross you cross the river uh, of mortality. So while I was working on on the problem of suffering in my PhD, I found two things. One, I found that I was actually really helped at an emotional level by working through this, having three years to sort of think about nothing else and to read all the Christian options really helped me sort some things out. 
I also hated nearly the entire process because the books that were out there were hugely philosophical, you know, abstract intellectual approaches. They seemed to need to illustrate everything with the grimmest examples of suffering you could imagine. So it was always Nazi war camp or the most horrific family abuse you can imagine. And I just found I couldn't read these books because I'd read a story like that, then I'd want to weep. And then they'd start sort of, if A, then A prime, then B, (laughs) you know, and I'm like, how can you put these two together? And so I just found it almost impossible to read these books. And so I thought I'd like to do something that would give people the opportunity to walk through the options the way that I was, but without having to go through a three-year process of learning the the intense philosophical jargon, you know, these massive words that they throw out all the time uh, with all these, these really grim examples. And so So I wanted to write a basic introduction to the problem of suffering that would help people think. And then one other thing I came across was sort of the psychology of how people learn and how people respond to suffering and make meaning in times of suffering. And one of the things that came out very strongly in the research is that people's own agency is very important. So people being able to make choices in that journey is important. So I thought, well, I know how to do that in a conversation. How in the world do I do that in a book? And I just had this sort of wild moment of thinking, <laughs> I wonder if I could write a choose your own theodicy. Um, and that's and that's basically what I did. So you start, this is the first uh, book Zondervan has ever published where there's no table of contents at the beginning. There's just a, a first decision and, and you have to decide you know, whether you start at the beginning or want to jump straight into the adventure or, you know, do all those things. And at each point, you read a couple of pages, two or three pages, and uh, then you're faced with a theological choice and have to decide where you want to go next. And then the publishers, uh, very kindly and rather adventurously, allowed me to also put it within a landscape. So I live in a world of pictures. In my in my brain are not words, but images. And so I'd sketched out this whole sort of landscape in my mind. And and they let me sort of hire a map maker to to sketch this out. And and so I take people up to the mountains of mystery or the open plains of freedom or, you know, through the warfare trenches of cosmic battle um, as, as we go along. And so it it was just a really really fun project to work on and yeah i think it is the first your book about suffering was really fun to work (laughs) oh i know (laughs) it's terrible but i have had a few people also say that they didn't expect to laugh as much as they did reading a book on suffering um i did keep on expecting eagles to come and take me to ministerith (laughs) yes next time next time Mm. when when i work out the copyright issues with the tolkien uh, estate. We can we can get Minas Tirith in there. The kilns, however, is in there because I do have a point exploring animal suffering, and there is a point mm. where you can meet C.S. Lewis even if I don't name him. Uh, and the description <laughs> is really of walking in the front door of the kilns and heading into the common room. Yes, if you've been to the kilns, it is eerily familiar. <laughs> uh, one thing I do want to say for anybody that buys this in the audiobook through Audible, the PDF with all of the maps and flowcharts is actually in the chapter listings. That took me a little bit of time to find, uh, but it's well worth finding because that is how you can navigate the book. Now, at the beginning of the episode, I said that the problem of evil is really the best argument for atheism, at least in my opinion, and St. Thomas Aquinas agrees with me here, so I'm I'm considering myself on fairly, fairly, fairly firm ground. Um, and you do consider this option in your book, and I heard that you even had one of the new atheists proof that section. Yeah, so I'm I'm here in Oxford and had had the chance to meet uh, Richard Dawkins a couple of times, and so I asked him, "Hey, I've I've written a defense of the atheistic view on on suffering of how you might explain it. Would you be willing to read this over?" 
And so he very kindly did. And he he sort of said, yeah, I think that that, you know, I don't think you've set up any straw men here. This is more or less how I would defend it. Um, there's more to say, but what you've said is is accurate. So, uh, you know, the first choice is, is God good and loving? God exists, but doesn't love you, or there is no God. And depending on which one you choose, I tried to argue equally with equal strength for each so that people wouldn't feel that I was trying to lead them uh, down a certain path. So this is kind of a weird podcast format because I've already given away a lot of my views in the first <laughs> half, whereas usually I hold those cards close to my chest and don't don't let anyone know what I think because the whole point is for them to explore uh, and them to find out what they think without undue pressure for me. Mm-hmm. It's funny because my co-host, Matt, he was actually at New College when he was wrestling with atheism and Christianity. And he actually spoke to Richard Dawkins after he had read The God Delusion. So uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful, uh, it's, it's wonderful that came full circle. But I, I do think you really did argue each case on its own merits because you present a bunch of options that not all Christians are going to think are valid options. But I felt like you really did give the best case that you could possibly give if you make if you make that particular decision to go down route A rather than route B, well, then this is the best case that could be made. Yeah, I, I mean, ironically, I found some of the Christian paths harder to write mm. than I did the non-Christian paths. So when I got to the sort of hell is eternal, um, I, I just stopped writing for about three months because I couldn't figure out how in the world to make this a persuasive case, but wanted to really do it with deep sympathy and and without sort of creating a straw man for that. So just as I asked Richard Dawkins to read those, uh, the atheist paths, when I came across a Christian path that I don't agree with, I, I equally did my homework and had people who defended those read them and, and critique it as well. Hmm. I think the Christian options are in some ways harder because they can be very much more nuanced. And you're always constantly bumping up against mystery. And so it's how much do you want to try and explain the mystery and how much do you have to say, we know truth A, we know truth B, truth C, we can't really wrap our heads around it, but that's in the mystery of God. So we just have to, you know, step away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, um, I, I had a had a, a symposium this weekend where a group of scholars were sitting around talking about animal suffering for three days. And we found that sort of, there's just a there's an underlying intuition that drives many of our theological positions. So, you know, mm-hmm. mine was this is God's good world, and sometimes it's difficult, but overall it's good. And others were, no, I cannot accept that this is how God intended the world to be. And there's something desperately wrong all the way down, you know. And I think, you know, and there and there was another person whose whose view was really why are we even talking about this? Because pointing to the mystery is all that can be said. And so I think I think that that's where listening very carefully to others can help us to not jump too quickly to whatever my underlying intuition is is right, and mm-hmm. and really help sort of hold up a mirror to our position. Uh, and that won't happen if we don't give other people a fair hearing. And that is something that Lewis says, and so is Chesterton and everyone else that he stole it from, that we're actually not quite as rational as we think we are. We're not purely rational beings. There are an awful lot of intuitions that we have to come to terms with uh, and either conclude that this is an, this is an irrational impulse uh, or to try and make some kind of sense of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that that's... Um really backed up by a lot of modern psychology. So Jonathan Haidt, uh, Daniel Kahneman, that sort of thing. We'll, we'll talk about that. And what we found was we were talking about our life histories. You know, I was talking about growing up in, in Alberta, in sort of farm country, where we're surrounded by farmers and people killed their own meat and that sort of thing. And, and mm-hmm. the realities of, of that, you know, learning as a young child how to, how to kill and gut a fish um, just leads you to different basic intuitions. And so I, you know, I sometimes I like the the phrase that all theology is is autobiography at some level. And I I think yeah. that uh, well not being entirely right, I think it I think it has a lot of truth in it. Hmm. Now, I've heard it said that in theory, theory and practice are the same thing, but in practice they're not. <laughs> so 
how do we connect the theodicies that we've spoken about today with our own lived experience of suffering? And what do we do when we encounter someone who is in the midst of suffering? You know, how do we become better comforters than the comforters of Job? Well, I think with the with with Job's friends, we sometimes forget that they sat with him for three days before opening their mouths. So that I, part was great. <laughs> I don't I don't know anyone who has waited with me that long before trying to to fill the space with answers. Um, so maybe if we even got to the level of Job's friends, we'd be doing a good job. Uh, but <laughs> having having said that, I think there's a sensitivity between when a trauma happens and when it's reasonable to, to to try and speak about it. So what we know about the brain is that in the in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic grief or that sort of thing, the front part of our brain, the sort of analytical side, largely shuts down and we're largely operating on the back sort of more emotional, some people would call it like the chimpanzee brain, but the the parts of the brain that are not really able to to, to, to process formal logic in that way. And so, of course, if that's what you're trying to offer, all you'll get is the no, you know, even, <laughs> even if what you're saying is what something that they would ultimately believe or have believed or, you know, it, it, it's just going to push away. So I think that uh, not, not trying to get to that place too much, but wait until they're ready, you know, in the immediate after I, math, they might be asking questions, but being sensitive to whether they're asking that looking for an answer, or this is simply a lament. Later on in the journey, when when the, the when the acute stage is passed and they're starting to process, then the important thing seems to be to help them find meaning more than giving them your meaning. So allowing them to explore ideas, maybe asking questions about about what that might mean if this were true and, you know, what about this other thing, rather than saying, oh, well, this is clearly what the Bible says, so this is what you should believe. And so, again, that was the kind of conversation I was trying to have in this book. But it also seems that almost one of the most important things when people go through suffering is their experience of suffering is often deeply shaped by what they believed before going into suffering. And so I think being willing to talk about hard topics long before the acute point hits is actually really important. And so, you know, rather than being a comforter, let, let's be like, you know, the first aid teams who, who train people in thinking about these things all the time so that when the acute uh, suffering happens, we are, we, are, we are ready. We know we at least have some mental frameworks that can withstand the storm. It's funny, as you were saying that, I was reminded of when I was back in England. I was in my mid-twenties, I want to say. And my mother came to me once because she was a bit concerned about me because she'd seen the books that I'd been reading. I read Philip Yancey's Where Is God When It Hurts, mm -hmm. which was actually the first place I encountered that idea of pain actually is a gift. It's something that we actually need. Uh, and I also read uh, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? Mm-hmm. And she was a little bit concerned about me. It was like, is everything okay? And I, and I, I remember saying, weird, I remember saying, life is just so good right now. I know it can't last. So I'm just preparing myself. <laughs> uh, I, I was, I've always been weird, but that's okay. That's awesome. I love it. But I do remember those two books being very formative. Uh, thinking through that stuff with Yancey was really helpful. And it was funny because Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People is written by... Uh, a rabbi, we don't get to Jesus, although he does hint at it at one point in the book. And I remember that being really powerful for me, realizing that the Christian conception of reality, everything changes when you can have a God who can become incarnate and suffer mm -hmm. with us and for us and redeem us. That I don't think I'd ever really thought about the crucifixion and what Jesus did really much more than in terms of salvation. Mm -hmm. But the, the psychological understanding of what that says about God, what that says about me, what that says about my suffering, it changes the landscape quite significantly. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it does. And I mean, speaking of good guides, Philip Yancey is, is a great guide and was a good guide to me as well as I, I wrestled through these sorts of things. So 
Yeah. Amen. <laughs> well, I actually have one last question. What do you make of Job? Does he suffer well? Oh, Job is such an interesting book. So immediately, sort of as an academic, I'm going, well, we could create our own choose your own adventure book, really, <laughs> around what you think. And actually, so this is this is a backstory, because the way that I thought about one of the ways I, I thought that this might work as a choose your own adventure book was because when I was at Regent College in Vancouver, we had to do a summary and I had chosen the book of Job. And I really did make a little choose your own adventure book as my <laughs> submission, where it asks questions like, do you think the prologue and the epilogue, those prose bits, the beginning and end that explain the sort of divine wager, are they part of the original book? Or were they added on later to, to sort of explain what is otherwise this unexplainable lament of the righteous man? You know, and, and then do you think that God answers Job? So people disagree on whether you know, some people say, well, God answers Job by showing up and sort of showing himself to Job. And that that really is the answer. And other people say, no, he doesn't answer at all. He doesn't even pretend to. <laughs> and then do you find the end? You would get an F on this score. Answer the question. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, is God just basically paying him off? Like, here, you get five new kids and, and twice as much stuff. Because stuff is obviously the 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 measure of of success, and this is totally fine that God did all these, you know. So I think I think it's a very a very difficult book, um, and and has been interpreted so many ways. One of the ones I really like is actually Eleanor Stump's uh, reading of it in Wandering in Darkness. Now, I, I I say that more from a practical position than sort of an academic position. But what what she what she brings out is that one of the possibilities of why God let this happen to Job was because of God's concern for Satan. So God is actually trying to save Satan through mm. through this thing. And so, well, God will make sure that the suffering Job goes through is redemptive in terms of Jones Job's own frame that there's also this extra story of God trying to pull Satan back into relationship by carrying out this, this sort of wager by saying, hey, look, you know, there is a possibility of somebody serving me, you know. But what's so funny about that is that in the prologue, it, you know, says, and, and Job was acted righteously and did not curse God. And then you get into the dialogue and the very first thing Job does is curse God, you know? And so, so there's these, there's these um, real challenges with it. I love it because I don't think it offers any simple answers. Hmm. I think every time I read it, I have a different response to what I think about all those questions. And, and that, that keeps me engaged with it. So, yeah, some days I think it's great. Some days I think it's horrible and uh, everything in between. Hmm. First time I encountered that book, it was with Charles Swindle. And he had this series that he went on for months and he went through it painfully, verse by verse by verse. You were so grateful when we got to the end of it. Um, but one person whose interpretation I like is Dr. Peter Kreit from Boston College. Because what he focuses on is what God says at the end. He says that oh, my servant Job has spoken rightly of me. And mm -hmm. he said, why? What is it that he said that was right? And Dr. Kreeft suggests that all of his friends spoke about God. But Job repeatedly talks to God. Even though they are in lament, they're, they're like the, the, the best parts of the Psalms where the psalmist is crying out to God, why is this happening? Where have you gone? This isn't meant to happen. Uh, and Dr. Crace says that that is speaking rightly of God, is to actually speak to him. Mm -hmm. So if I can just go back and uh, review that theory and practice and, and what should we do to not be Job's comforters, I think that would be another great way is to say, instead of speaking to people about God, speak to God with them. Hmm. And I was once giving a talk on reading scripture and it was actually my best friend. He, he said, but what do you do when scripture, you don't like it or it seems dull? I, I said, well, just go to the Psalms because you will find an emotion there that you will definitely be able to connect to because mm -hmm. either everything's great, everything's terrible or everything's like, eh. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the things I love about preaching, especially with the lectionary. 
is that you know when when the when they're just set out, you don't get to choose them. Um, <laughs> you feel like you're constantly being assigned with the absolute most wretched parts of of this book we we love, and um, and you've got to wrestle with it. You've really mm. got to struggle with it. And I think that that has its own richness. I think it's often too easy to 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 sort of say, "Ooh, I don't know what to do with that." And that there there is a point. Maybe, maybe oh, see, I'm just talking about myself here. So. As a person who like struggled with scripture and then did ten years of theological education and then have found some way to stay in it so I can keep working these things out, maybe that's just my my bias coming out. Um, but it's good to wrestle with scripture. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it makes sense. I remember reading Tertullian where he was pointing out that Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And he even speaks about when we go to church, that this is what the church does with God. And he says, and in this violence, so in this wrestling with God, God delights, uh, which mm -hmm. I find terribly encouraging because it means that I can come to God without all the answers, being confused, hurt and angry. And yeah. the very fact that I'm coming to him is actually something that he wants. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Bethany Solorita, thank you for coming on the show. I hear the final call for drinks at the pub down the street from you, The Eagle and Child. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of your book, Why Is There Suffering? Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. To find more about me, just Google my name, the only Bethany Solorita in the world, and you will find probably more than you want to know, really. Uh, high school badminton records and on. Uh, pick up my book, the one thing I would ask is people make the effort to buy it from a local real bookshop, whether that means ordering it in or that sort of thing. Let's support our local bookshops. You could get it on Amazon, but uh, let's support locally. Sorry. <laughs> if, if at all possible. If at all possible. I understand it's not always. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mentioned the Eagle and Child just a moment ago, and also the Lamb and Flag. What is the current status, since you're in Oxford, what is the status of these two establishments? Yes. So the Eagle and Child is being renovated so that it can become an inn. So so it can become both pub and hotel. So basically so that tourists can stay there in exactly the way Lewis and Tolkien did not. <laughs> they were actually very unpopular, the Eagle and Child. They got kicked out because they'd always go in, buy half a pint each, and then talk for hours. And the landlord finally just said, that's it, we're done with you. And they got kicked out, and that's when they went to the Lamb and Flag across the street. Lamb and Flag, as I understand it, so it's owned by St. John's College, which is right next door. And it... Uh, was not making money over the pandemic and the charitable status of the college meant they couldn't keep pouring money into something that wasn't making money on its own. Uh, so they couldn't float the business in that way. So it had to shut down under the way it was run earlier. Rumor is that it will be run by a third party. So it will be leased out in the same way that the Lamb and Flag, both are actually owned by St. John's college and uh will reopen imminently well i'm hoping to be in england before the end of the year so let's pray it's before well, then let's meet for a pint because i can see lamb and flag from my window here i also want to come around and have a have a pint of your homebrew oh absolutely that would be very welcome <laughs> Uh, thanks again to Bethany for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, and particularly our top tier supporters. Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and talk about the meaning of suffering. I'm sure that will lead to nothing but enlightened conversation. Please join us next time when we will be continuing with Apologetics Month and we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.